Visita Sprint esta semana y encuentra las mejores ofertas. Apresúrate y visita una tienda Sprint hasta el 26 de enero y recibes por cuenta nuestra el nuevo iPad con una pantalla retina más grande de 10.2 pulgadas y teclado inteligente. Además, te damos 100 dólares al cambiarte. iPad de séptima generación con 32 gigas por 0 dólares al mes luego de crédito mensual de 19 dólares con 17 centavos que se aplica dentro de dos facturas por 24 meses. Con verificación de crédito y nueva línea en plan elegible. Si cancela temprano, el saldo restante será exigible. Impuestos se pagan al momento de la venta. Requiere teléfono activo en la cuenta. Con tarjeta Mastercard prepagada que se envía luego de traspaso. Inscripción en línea y 60 días de servicio en una nueva línea. I always used to pray to have the ability one day to smell what 10 o'clock smell like. Because for so long, again, more over 21 years, my curfew to be inside my cell, to be inside the, the actual building itself, I had to be in no later than 8.30. And in the summertime, you know, the sun is just now declining, you know, below its horizon. Um, at 8.30 in the summertime. So I said that to say, I never, I forgot what 10 o'clock smelled like. So I, it's real therapeutic for me. Since I've been home, I make my way um, to, to the park around that time period. I don't have to worry about being told to go in and that is lockdown time. So I, I finally got a chance to smell what 10.30 smelled like and I seen what the moon looked like. That's Terrence Lewis. You haven't heard from him directly before, but you have heard about his case. At the end of 2017, as part of our series on the Philadelphia cases, we covered his story over a four-episode series. He was convicted of a murder in West Philadelphia that happened when he was 17 years old, and for which he was sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole. In May of 2019, his conviction was overturned, and he came home a free man. Welcome to Undisclosed. Instead of an addendum episode this week, we are going to be doing a fifth episode in our series on Terrence Lewis to bring you an update on recent developments in his case. My name is Rabia Chaudhary. I'm an attorney and author of Adnan Story, and I'm here with my colleagues, Susan Simpson and Colin Miller. Hi, this is Colin Miller. I'm an associate dean and professor at the University of South Carolina School of Law, and I blog at Evidence Prof Blog. Hi, I'm Susan Simpson. I'm an attorney at Clinton and Peed PLC in Washington, D.C., and I blog at The View from LL2. I've been out, um, yesterday's been a whole month. What's, yeah. what's that been like? Ah, uh, it's been, for the first time in a long time in my life, I really, um, have had a chance to exhale. Terrence spent 21 years in prison for the murder of Hulon Bernard Howard, 57 years old, who was shot in his West Philly row house on August 6th, 1996, after a robbery turned violent. Bernard and his girlfriend, Lena Laws, who went by the name Star, had been smoking crack that evening with two acquaintances when three young guys had come into the house. Two of them were armed, and the four older people in the house were robbed. And then, just before they left, one of the three guys shot Bernard once in the back before fleeing the house. When EMTs arrived on the scene, Bernard was pronounced dead. 
Jamel Lawson, Jamar Gladden, and Terrence Lewis were all arrested and convicted of Bernard Howard's murder. The entirety of the evidence against them consisted of the eyewitness identifications made by Lena Starlaws, who said that Jamel Lawson was the man who'd shot and killed Bernard that night, and that Jamar Gladden and Terrence Lewis had been the young guys with him. Terrence Lewis has always maintained his innocence, though. And while in prison, he began filing habeas actions in his own behalf, pro se, trying to prove his innocence to the court. In 2009, Terrence had a hearing before a U.S. magistrate judge, Carol Sandra Moore Wells, where he presented eyewitnesses who testified that Terrence Lewis had not been one of the three men at Bernard Howard's house that night. One of those witnesses was his co-defendant, Jamar Gladden, who testified he had been present at the house, but that Terrence had not. And Jamel Lawson, the third co-defendant, signed an affidavit saying the first time he'd ever met Terrence was at their joint trial. And Judge Wells had believed those witnesses. She wrote in her opinion, The court found the testimony of these witnesses to be credible. Hence, the court believes a petitioner is innocent. Moreover, in the court's view, in light of the new evidence that petitioner presented at the April 2009 hearing, it is more likely than not that no reasonable juror would have convicted petitioner. That did not mean, however, that Terrence got to go home, or even have a court consider his claims. As Judge Wells' opinion went on to conclude, Because Petitioner is barred by the Anti-Terrorism and Effective Death Penalty Act from having an evidentiary hearing on the merits of his claim, it would be futile to explore further the question of his actual innocence, because his innocence under the current Supreme Court precedent is merely a gateway to consider the merits of his defaulted constitutional claim. The Supreme Court has noted that a claim of innocence based on newly discovered evidence is not a ground for habeas relief. This reluctance to allow for substantive claims of actual innocence in habeas corpus has been justified on the grounds of the need for finality in criminal prosecutions and the disruption that it would cause to our federal system. This court's inability to grant petitioner habeas relief based upon his compelling showing of innocence is frustrating. However, this is the import of the Supreme Court's prior precedent on the issue, and given the hierarchical structure of the federal court system, this court is required to follow that precedent and decline any direct habeas relief based upon petitioner's showing of innocence. And so Terrence remained in prison with little hope of a procedural opportunity that would allow him to assert his claims of actual innocence. Then in 2012, the Supreme Court ruled in Miller v. Alabama that imposing mandatory life without parole sentences on juveniles violated the Eighth Amendment's ban on cruel and unusual punishment. Terrence, along with over 500 other juvenile lifers in Pennsylvania, were required to be resentenced. Because Terrence had no other criminal record, it was very likely that, at resentencing, he would receive a new sentence that would make him eligible for parole at some time in the not-too-distant future. There was just one problem, though. Terrence was still trying to assert a claim of actual innocence. And because the court did not agree to resentence Terrence while those actual innocence claims remained unresolved, Terrence fell into sort of a procedural black hole. His case couldn't move ahead, either on his claims of actual innocence or on his resentencing as a juvenile lifer. In 2017, Colin read an article on Terrence's case, and he reached out to his attorneys to see about covering his case on Undisclosed. If you haven't listened to that series yet, you should go back and give it a listen now. But as a recap, the biggest question in Terrence's case has to do with the Commonwealth's only evidence against him, the testimony of eyewitness Lena Starr Laws. She had identified the 17-year-old Terrence Lewis in a lineup, as well as 18-year-old Jamar Gladden, and a third man who was in his early 20s named Jamal Lawson. 
Terrence has always maintained that Lena Laws got it wrong, though he has no idea why she would have implicated him in this crime. Lena Laws. Yeah, I've seen Lena Laws, you know, um, on probably maybe two to three different um, occasions. Being around the neighborhood, you know, that I grew up in, I guess being a product of my environment, just hanging out, you know, I mean, around, like I said, the, the local neighborhood, I've seen her in passing. In addition to um, one of my co-defendants, Jamar Gladden, he had a personal um, dealings with her. You know, he had personal business with her. And me and Jamar Gladden, my co-defendant, who's um, on this case also, who was on, on this case, um, we actually, you know, grew up together. This is my childhood friend. So this is how I come to know about and how she come to know about um, myself. But other than that, nothing more than that. Yeah. So you, there was never, you never had any thought that she had anything against you in particular? No, not at all. I, to this day, and this is just my personal belief, because I still rumble and wrestle with um, answering that question. Um, I, at times, you know, I, throughout the um, 10 plus years that Mr. Leger was in my life, and after, um, you know, talking strategy pertaining to how we we're going to litigate, you know what I mean, actual innocence before the court, on a downtime, I would ask him, you know, that personal type question as to, like, why me? You know, um, I guess similar to a question that, you know, I would personally, you know, internally ask God, like, you know, why me? Yeah, as far as I could tell from the file, it seems most likely she just knew you were Jamar's friend. Exactly. And so she filled in her blanks in her memory with someone that exactly. she knew hung around was, him. Exactly. And that was sufficient enough for the Philadelphia Police Department. But given how threadbare the case was against Terrence, the credibility of Lena Laws was everything, because she was literally the only thing. There was nothing else to implicate Terrence in this crime. So if there was evidence that Lena Laws had gotten it wrong, well, that would have changed the entire trial against him. As it turned out, though, there had been evidence that Lena Laws got it wrong. It's just that it hadn't been turned over to the defense. That's what to this day really um, saddens me, that the fact that they had that piece of evidence and still um, pursued me or and still did not disclose it, you know, so that I can actually um, mount a defense, you know, to prove that their time, that star witness was lying. That, that, that right there, um, that was another um, major blow. And mind you, I just found out about that in recent time. Um, that's something that you, you all guys, y'all actually um, unearthed for me. This new piece of evidence was a sheet of handwritten notes obtained from Terrence's police file. These are the notes we refer to in our series as the Omar 60 and Walnut notes, based on the first line written on the top of the page. And although they weren't labeled, it's clear this page of notes was taken by a detective who had interviewed Denise Williams, one of the other eyewitnesses who had been in the house on the night that Bernard Howard was killed. And those notes show something that has never been revealed to any of the defense attorneys in Terrence's case that one of the eyewitnesses to Bernard Howard's murder had contradicted Lena Starr laws. Denise Williams had not identified Terrence Lewis. He actually um, identified that night another individual who was not me, but who she believed at the time was the third perpetrator. But that information, that um, police report was never disclosed. That would have um, showed that she literally was... Um, she was she was sadly mistaken. She she was wrong. She had got it. She just got it wrong. 
there are few things as stressful to parenting than like your kids being on social media <laughs> and having devices that connect to social media and the internet in general. I've got a 22 year old, you know, she's had a cell phone since she was about 13. Of course, she's a grown up now, but you know, there are many years when it was really hard to try to make sure that, you know, she was safe online and there weren't a lot of tools. I now have a 10 year old who doesn't have a cell phone yet, but she does have an iPod and that iPod connects to all kinds of things. And we are always struggling to figure out what well, we have been struggling to figure out how to have safe parameters. Well, very recently, I finally got Circle, and I'm so happy that I did because Circle is the easiest way to manage your family's online time across all of the connected devices. So not just my daughter, but honestly, all of us, we all kind of need parameters, but kids especially, look, you know, they can be buying apps they shouldn't, they can be signing up for social networks that they're too young for, but with Circle, what I've done is we set the guidelines, and I know that my daughter can't basically do anything beyond those guidelines, you know? And also, I can manage her time. Circle makes it easy to take childhood offline when needed so they can focus on homework, chores, or bedtime. Now I know that when I say you can only have an hour online, she actually only gets an hour online. To be honest, I love her, but you know, she's a 10-year-old. These kids can be kind of like, uh, they can be sneaky. Sometimes she can have that, that device when I don't realize she has it. <laughs> but this way, it doesn't matter whether or not she has it because Circle makes sure it goes offline. Now, every single family member has a profile on Circle that's fully customizable to their needs, age, and maturity. And with Circle Home Plus and the Circle app, we as parents can filter what content is allowed monitor history and usage so you know what's been going on at all times. Look, we will never stop worrying about our kids, but with Circle, we will have one less thing to worry about. Right now, our listeners get a limited time offer of $30 off a Circle Home Plus when you visit meetcircle.com undisclosed and enter undisclosed at checkout. Get $30 off when you visit meetcircle.com undisclosed and enter undisclosed at checkout. This is a limited time podcast exclusive offer. That's meetcircle.com undisclosed and enter undisclosed to save $30. Remember, the only eyewitness to testify at Terrence's trial was Lena Laws but she wasn't the only eyewitness to the actual murder. One of the other witnesses was a woman named Denise Williams, and while she didn't testify, she had been interviewed by the police. And in that interview, as memorialized in the Omar 60 and Walnut notes, Denise had described to a detective the three young men she had seen that night. She described a man who matched Jamel Lawson and a man who matched Jamar Gladden. And then she had described a third man. But the third man most definitely did not match Terrence Lewis, because Denise said that the third young guy went by the name Hakeem Sade Muhammad. She said this guy was on house arrest at the time, and he was wearing an ankle GPS monitor while awaiting trial. Yeah, this, so it couldn't have been me. I've never in my life been arrested of any crime. I've never, not a juvie, not a juvenile sentence. You know, um, my first, I guess, running with the law was this, this one right here, and yeah, they threw me to the wolves. When the federal judge had written in 2010 that the court believed that Terrence was likely innocent, that had been based on new evidence, new witnesses, that Terrence had been able to call and presented his hearing. Procedurally, however, Terrence was deemed to have defaulted on those claims. That new evidence had come too late to matter. This new evidence, though, from the Omar 60 and Walnut notes, was important not because of what it proved about Terrence's innocence, although it did provide strong evidence of that as well. But the Omar 60 and Walnut notes were also something more. They were evidence of the due process violation the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania had committed in order to convict Terrence Lewis of this crime. Because in a single eyewitness case, 
having a second eyewitness who is at least as credible as the first, but who contradicts the first witness's identification, well, it's Brady material, hands down. Unfortunately for Terrence, though, even having this new evidence didn't change the brutal choice that faced him. Terrence could either continue to assert his claims of innocence and remain in prison, or he could drop his innocence claims and be resentenced as a juvenile lifer, which would likely allow him to go home before the year was out. Earlier this year, Terrence finally made the decision to forego his state-level actual innocence claims so that he could proceed with resentencing. Yeah, that that was a hard moment for me, honestly. Uh, you know, the, the fact that, and, and I get it, and I, I'm behind it, I support it. You know, I guess, and, and it probably was due to um, stubbornness. I did not want to relinquish my innocent claims. But it came a time when I'm seeing individuals who definitely showed um, reform, who definitely showed that they was um, rehabilitated, you know, get another bite at the apple to get a chance to go home and live life and start a family. But I had to remain in jail. I had to um, continue to rot in jail for a crime that I, you know, that I didn't commit. That that was a blow. That was a blow to my soul. It, it hurt it. I mean, so um, I can't even begin to describe the emotions you know, that I felt, you know, I was angry, I was mad, I was disappointed, I was resentful, you know, at the system, because that didn't make sense to me. David Leger, Terrence's defense attorney, knew that in giving up his innocence claims, Terrence might be making a sacrifice that would get him nothing in return. Well, yeah, um, you know, you like, when you counsel clients, you like to be able to give them uh, clear options, insurance, assurance. And we couldn't give Terrence either. We basically said, look, we know that if we drop the state court claims, that it kills our chance of ever getting relief in a state court. We believe that we can seek through habeas relief in the federal court, but we can't guarantee it. And we can't guarantee that having dropped the claims in the state court wasn't going to somehow preclude us from relief in the federal court. And uh, you know, it, it's uh, we were asking him to take a uh, to take a dive into the unknown, and uh, you know, to his credit, he had the, the courage to do that. And it ends up we couldn't have known the ending of the story. It ends up being a very good choice, but we both know that it could have ended up being as disastrous as a million other crazy things that have happened in Terrence's case to keep him in prison for 20 plus years. And so Terrence Lewis proceeded to resentencing. A hearing date was set for May 21st, 2019. I was, I, the, the day of my resentencing hearing, I was moping. I was moping. I was, I, I had all types of jitters and butterfly because I have, I, I was informed that the judge that I was going before, um, Judge Barbara McDermott, that, you know, she was tough. And being as though it was a resentencing, that's the posture we was going before. She did not want to hear the claims of innocence. So thus, I would have had no choice but to accept one of the factors and for her to accept the agreed upon sentence that the Commonwealth had offered me, which was 20 to life. I, she wanted me, as everybody else who come before her, to accept responsibility. So that was the, the catch-22 that I was in. So we tried strategically, Mr. Lizay and um, everyone from the defense team, to straddle that line with not accepting responsibility, 
and showing her why with, with, with putting before her my actual innocence claim, but not harboring on it. So that, that was a real delicate uh, insertion that Mr. Leger had put on for me. But because of that, I was scared to death. Terrence's fear was understandable. Another juvenile lifer had recently gone before Judge McDermott for resentencing. And like in Terrence's case, the Commonwealth was also agreeing to time served. But Judge McDermott had felt the defendant hadn't taken sufficient responsibility for his crime. She'd give him additional time to serve, delaying his release. A year. I was prepared to do six months to a year. Um, and when I went in there and she read, and we already knew that um, Barbara, Judge Barbara McDermott was a, a detailed judge, that she wasn't going to, um, she, she reads all the material, but we figured that she was going to penalize me like every other court penalized me for maintaining innocence. As part of the hearing, Terrence's attorneys called in six correctional officers who had worked with Terrence over the years. Terrence's attorney asked them to describe Terrence. Very respectful, they said. Extremely professional, a mentor to the younger guys. Someone you could always count on. He was, in fact, a model inmate. Many of the officers testified that in all their years in corrections, they had never met an inmate better than him. If this had been an ordinary juvenile lifer case, Judge McDermott said, she would have been willing to accept the Commonwealth's agreed-upon sentencing. As she stated in court, even if Terrence Lewis did do this, another day in jail is not going to protect the community. It's not going to make him a better person. He is who he is today, so I'd be giving him a sentence that would be making him eligible for parole anyways. One way or another, he's paid his debt. If he didn't do it, he paid more than his debt. He paid someone else's debt. But this, Judge McDermott realized, was not an ordinary juvenile lifer case. Before Terrence's case had come to her for resentencing, Judge McDermott hadn't known anything about it. But after the case was assigned to her, she began reading, as she stated in court, quote, I looked at this case in preparing for sentencing today as an experienced former lawyer and as a judge, and I said, there's something wrong here. On the day of the hearing, Terrence Lewis and his attorneys went into Judge McDermott's courtroom expecting for Terrence to be sentenced once again in his murder conviction. Their greatest hope was that he'd be given a sentence that would make him immediately eligible for parole, and by the end of 2019, Terrence might be paroled out. On the other hand, their greatest fear was that Terrence's continued assertion of his innocence would result in him receiving additional years before parole could even be an option. The possibility of Terrence coming home right then as a free man had never occurred to them. Yeah, I, I put zero percent chance of this ha of that happening that day, um, and we didn't. That's not what we asked for. I wouldn't have expected it in a million years. There was just some kind of cosmic intervention because the only reason that it happened is that Patricia Cummings and her colleague Tom Gaeta of the Conviction Integrity Unit happened to be summoned. Judge McDermott's chambers that day, that afternoon, on another matter. Patricia Cummings is the new head of the Philadelphia DA's Special Investigations and Conviction Integrity Unit. She was brought on in 2018 after newly elected DA Larry Krasner took office. Krasner had campaigned on a progressive agenda aimed at ending mass incarceration, and one of his promises had been to revamp the city's Conviction Integrity Unit. And to do that, he needed to find new leadership for the unit. Honestly, uh, because I'm a Texas girl, I never really thought about living anywhere where it's really cold. 
So the fact that I'm in Philly is a big surprise, mainly to my family. But I got a phone call in December of 2017 after Larry was elected. And in that phone call, I was asked whether or not I would be interested or even consider moving to Philly to run the Conviction Integrity Unit for Larry. It kind of came out of the blue, but I have to say there was just this gut reaction that why would I not? What a wonderful opportunity to do what I'm passionate about. I was here living in Philly probably six weeks later. At first, it was just her and Assistant DA Andrew Welbrock, who was the only holdover from the Conviction Integrity Unit under the previous DA. Though at the time, the unit hadn't gone by that name. I forgot that y'all used to be called the Conviction Review Unit. Was that a deliberate change to Conviction Integrity Unit? Yes. <laughs> so, I mean, a Conviction Review Unit, it, it feels very um, reactive, and we are certainly not limited to that. It's kind of a holistic, you know, everything needs to be done in the most ethical way and with the understanding that we're not about obtaining convictions, we're we're about as prosecutors obtaining justice. Um, but as far as the change from conviction review to conviction integrity, we also try to be different in terms of how we actually engage in the review of the old cases. Um, some folks would say, and, and certainly Andrew did not fit into this, but some folks would say the unit, how it existed before, was not serious about really doing an appropriate review into cases when claims came out. Um, so because of that, we wanted to make sure that people understood that the new unit was really going to take it very seriously and look for the integrity in the prior conviction. Over the past year and a half, the unit has expanded and now has seven attorneys. And that was definitely necessary because word has gotten out about the changes at the Philadelphia DA's Conviction Integrity Unit. The entire year of 2017, we received about 140 formal submissions, both from attorneys and from pro se uh, litigants. And we hit that number in the first three months of 2018. Um, and I think by year's end, we were at about 700. And already halfway through this year, I think we're at like 450. Andrew Welbrock is the prosecutor at the Conviction Integrity Unit who first reviewed Terrence's case after it was submitted. He remembers why the case first stood out to him. So, I mean, any case where it is a single eyewitness and no other corroborating evidence at trial is going to stick out. Um, There were some significant inconsistencies in that eyewitness's statements versus her preliminary hearing testimony versus her trial testimony That, that certainly stuck out. And then, you know, of course, really the, uh, I guess the elephant in the room in Terrence's case was the fact that a federal judge had called him innocent 10 years ago. That had stood out to Judge McDermott, too. The earlier ruling from the U.S. magistrate judge is part of what caused her to dig deeper into Terrence's case when it first came to her. And why, on the day of Terrence Lewis's resentencing hearing, when she happened to see Patricia Cummings at the courthouse, Judge McDermott had decided to ask her about it. But the judge summons him to talk about another matter. At the end of that discussion, the judge said to them, you know, you really should be looking into this Terrence Lewis case. And Patricia Cummings said, judge, we've been looking into that case for years, and we're highly troubled by that case. We believe that Terrence Lewis deserves a new trial, but 
we understand their strategy is to get that relief through, through federal court. And frankly, we're, the DA's office anticipates that habeas uh, filing and, and basically is going to agree that there was a violation of due process. And so the judge took that all in and said, well, it doesn't make any sense then. If you think he deserves a new trial, if Judge Wells thinks he's innocent, if, uh, you know, if all of that is true, why should I be sentencing him? Judge McDermott had been troubled by what she'd read in Terrence Lewis's file, but she hadn't even known that there was an investigation into it by the DA's office. And now she was learning that not only had there been an investigation into the case, but that it had actually been completed. As Judge McDermott would say later in court that day, this put her in a quandary. She could have done what everyone expected and accepted the Commonwealth's recommendation of a sentence 20 years to life. Terrence would have immediately become eligible for parole, and he'd almost certainly get it. But that would take months and months more to be done, and even then Terrence would still remain on parole with all the restrictions and losses of liberty that entail. Instead, Judge McDermott called in David Leger, Terrence's attorney, for a discussion. And when I finally got called back to the roving room, having no idea what was going on, the judge's question to me was, why should I be sentencing a, an innocent man? <laughs> and I said, Your Honor, I've asked that question a million times for 10 years. And sadly, my answer is because that's the, that's the, the, the best option we have at this moment to affect justice, which is to get Terrence Lewis out of prison ASAP. And she said, well, I think we can do better. After speaking to Judge McDermott, David Leger went back to break the news to Terrence. She called for a recess after, like I said, this is about after 5 o'clock going towards 6. And she called for a recess real quick. And I went inside the holding pen, and Mr. Leger came in. And when I seen his face, now, mind you, my whole journey, my whole life has been nothing but heartaches and upsets. So when I seen his face, he was like, he was stunned. He was, it was just, he had this bland look on his face. I couldn't read it. He was just like, he was just like taken away by something he heard. So, of course, I attributed that due to my experience. I said, what happened now? Like, damn, like, yeah. the day up, so he said, no, Terrence, um, he said, the judge, she wants to let you go now. Judge McDermott had a plan. When they got back into the courtroom, Terrence's attorney would amend his petition for post-conviction relief right then and there. It would be an oral amendment. There was no time for paper filings. And in the oral amended petition for post-conviction relief, Terrence would seek relief in the form of a new trial for violation of his due process rights. The Commonwealth of Pennsylvania would join Terrence's motion, and the judge would grant it. Terrence's initial reaction to this news was the same reaction I had when I heard about it. So I'm like, wow, can that actually take place? And I I was hopeful that it could be, but that was like um, wishful thinking. You know, throughout my incarceration, I would read cases, and you would see the, the power or the, the authority that courts are invested. They can do it if they so choose and the parameters of, you know, uh, um, of law. What happened at the hearing that was supposed to be for Terrence's resentencing isn't something anyone expected because it's not something that usually happens. Usually in innocence cases, every step of the process is complicated, lengthy, drawn out. But there's no reason it has to be that way. 
And in the right case, when the right stars have aligned, well, things can go a bit quicker. It, it was a surprise because what it was scheduled for was the Miller resentencing. And so we didn't think that we were going to be facing um, a judge looking at it for the guilt innocence issues as well. But she said that she, you know, had looked at the case. It concerned her and she was willing to deal with it all at the same time, which we thought was just fabulous. The only reason it was even possible, though, is because of the years of legwork that had gone into the case from all sides. The good thing is we were prepared. Um, Andrew had done a whole lot of work. We had talked about it as a team. And as Andrew said, we had spent a lot of time talking to the defense team as well, such that we were all there and prepared to move forward. That preparation included going out and re-interviewing all the key witnesses they could find, including Denise Williams, the eyewitness who hadn't testified at Terrence's trial, but who, in a police interview, had identified the third man involved in Bernard Howard's murder as someone other than Terrence Lewis. The CIU also spoke to Jamar Gladden, Terrence's co-defendant, and other witnesses who were on the street on the night of the shooting. There were only two key eyewitnesses that the Conviction Integrity Unit couldn't hear from. The first was Jamel Lawson, who is the co-defendant that was identified as the man who actually fired the shot that killed Bernard Howard. He was in psychiatric care at the time and unable to provide useful information. The second witness was Lena Laws herself, the star eyewitness, the one who had identified Terrence Lewis at trial. And although the CIU tried repeatedly to speak with her, she refused to cooperate and they never could get a statement from her. As a result of their work, though, Patricia Cummings was able to tell the court that, quote, as a result of our internal investigation, the Conviction Integrity Unit has determined that there has indeed been a miscarriage of justice in that there is a strong likelihood that Mr. Lewis is actually innocent of the offense for which he was convicted. Unfortunately for Assistant DA Andrew Welbrock, he'd been scheduled to be elsewhere in the day of the hearing. So it was a little frustrating that I couldn't be there for it, um, but I'm glad that you know the result happened what it did. I've been working on this case for, I guess, almost two years at the point that all of this happened, actually almost exactly two years. I spent a lot of time reviewing paperwork, speaking to witnesses, you know, working with defense counsel, and, you know, all the time hearing about how remarkable an individual Terrence Lewis was. So for him to get out, to get a chance to speak with him um, with defense counsel a couple weeks ago, I mean, all of that's true. It's, I mean, it's really the right result happened. It's a shame it took so long. On the day of Terrence's resentencing, Years of work by both defense attorneys and prosecutors finally came together in a way that made Terrence's freedom possible. But as Terrence's attorney, David Leger, knows well, all of those efforts might have come to naught if Terrence Lewis hadn't been the person that he is. It's because Terrence, for 20 years, had kept the faith, and because for 20 years Terrence had conducted himself in such a way that the, cos you know, the cosmos finally owed him one, and it finally paid him. Uh, we used to joke at one point in time um, that if it wasn't for bad luck, I wouldn't have no luck at all. Remember? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's also, I mean, it's it's frustrating and heartbreaking that even when the case is very solid, the defendant's conduct after incarceration has it makes it difficult or impossible to get any progress in the case. It unfortunately does become part of it. It's a huge part of it. Without a doubt, the way Terrence has conducted himself over 20 years in prison has had a huge impact on how people, including Judge Wells, including Judge McDermott, because Judge McDermott heard testimony from 
six correctional officers from SCI Huntington, all of whom extolled Terrence's, um, Terrence as a human being and Terrence as a, a man of dignity and respect. And without a doubt, that has huge impact. It even frankly has huge impact on the victim's brother and the victim's niece, both of whom ultimately agreed on the record that it made no sense for Terrence to be in prison for this crime. At the end of Terrence's resentencing, all of these things finally came together. A defense attorney who was appointed for one hearing and then chose to stay on for 10 years. A federal judge who had dismissed Terrence's case on procedural grounds, but went out of her way to memorialize her findings that the evidence of his innocence was compelling and credible, leaving an indelible mark on the record that something had gone wrong here. A newly elected DA and his newly empowered Conviction Integrity Unit who were willing and able to reinvestigate the case for themselves. An eyewitness who had been willing to tell police about who she'd seen at the crime scene, and who, 21 years later, was willing to stand by her story. A sentencing judge who took the time to dig into the case, and when she could have chosen to do the easy and obvious thing, chose instead to find a way to do justice. And a defendant who, for 21 years, had committed himself to being the model inmate. That is how, at the end of Terrence Lewis's resentencing hearing, no sentence was handed down at all. The courtroom was packed with supporters of Terrence's, and they really didn't know what was going on. Okay. Uh, of course, they wouldn't have known one way or the other, but they knew something unusual was going on because the judge was sort of going on about how thin the Commonwealth's case was and how the one witness was not somebody that seemed that you could really rely on, et cetera, et cetera. And of course, when the judge finally first said that, you know, the effect of today's proceeding is going to be that these charges are discharged, um, the audience went nuts, as you would imagine, and the judge asked them to, you know, be quiet until we get it done. Remember, she said, look, until I say the magic words, nothing is done, so please be quiet. And within 90 seconds, I orally amended the petition. She granted the petition, the effect of which was to grant Terrence the right to a new trial. The DA's office then now processed the charges meaning, uh, you know, the charges were no longer existing charges, and the judge then discharged Terrence. The court may have discharged Terrence, but that didn't make him a free man quite yet. Because of how things had played out that day, Terrence's hearing hadn't gotten started until about 5 p.m. that evening, and by then it was too late for the correction system to get anything done on its end. Uh, now, the only, she couldn't, because he had been brought down by the uh, sheriff's and whatnot, he could not walk out of the courtroom. He had to be taken back to Chester, and then it was such an unusual occurrence that BOP took until about two o'clock the next afternoon to finally let Terrence go. They wanted to make sure everybody signed off on it because it just didn't seem like what should have been happening in their mind. They're like, well, we have to check, we have to check. <laughs> we just got to make sure it's actually a real thing. <laughs> <laughs> they needed a letter from the DA's office. Yeah, yeah. Oh, uh, they, they all, and, and, you know, the last thing they wanted to do was set Terrence free and then have somebody say, wait a minute, where's Lewis? How'd he get out? Exactly. So Terrence went back to prison for his 7,823rd night behind bars since his arrest in 1997.
It was a long night. That was a night that I literally merged until morning. I ain't, I ain't go to sleep that night. I stayed up. Um, I sat on the edge of my bed and um, I grasped my hands together, clasped my hands together, and um, I just shook my head for about like an hour or two in unbelief, in disbelief, excuse me, in disbelief, um, just shocked and just amazed at what just transpired. And to wrap my head around the fact that I would be going home the very next morning um, after 21 years, it was unbelievable. I didn't believe it. And I heard it. I was there. I witnessed it because I was, I had been away for so long that it started to become like, um, like that was my life. That's all I knew. That's all um, I had to look forward to. So to hear what the judge said and knowing that that order was um, minutes or hours away from following, yeah, I stood up. I, I, I was up. I remained up that whole entire night waiting to um, be released. And then what happened that day? You finally get processed. I'm sure I felt like forever. <laughs> yeah, I'm laughing because it did feel like forever because that morning, about 5, 5.30, and I said, all right, as soon as administration gets in, I know for a fact, because I heard what Ms. Judge McDermott said, and she gets the final say. So when 10 o'clock came and I still wasn't released, I started to call my attorneys. And by that time, Mr. Leger was on his way up um, to SEI Chester. So 10 o'clock turned to 11 o'clock, and 11 o'clock turned to 12 o'clock count time. And um, again, I was refused to be counted in there because I was no longer, you know, part of that society no longer. Then after that, like Mr. Leger said, um, 2 o'clock came, and I practically sprinted out that front door to embark upon my new life. On May 22nd, 2019, at 2 o'clock p.m., Terrence Lewis finally walked out through the prison doors at SCI Chester. Terrence's family and friends were there waiting for him. His father had flown in from Arkansas to be there, and his son was there as well. Terrence's son had been born not long after he was arrested, though now he's older than Terrence was when he first went in. What's up, bud? Give me some of that, man. Right there. I say the best for man. What's up, man? And Terrence's attorneys, Kevin Harden Jr. and David Leger, were there too. They represented Terrence pro bono, and for Terrence, David Leger was the first break he ever got in his case. Though, for a long time, it was also the last break he got. If it wasn't for Mr. Leger, I would have been lost hope. I'd have been lost hope. Prior to um, Mr. Leger being appointed to me, for a long time, I started to develop trust issues because I had attorneys that came on board and just dropped the ball, you know, they, um, they just dropped the ball, um, just dropped the ball. So it came a time where I wanted to litigate myself. I felt comfortable with just litigating myself. So when I finally did reach the courtroom door after 10 years and they appointed 
me, Mr. Leger, he stayed in my life for 10 more additional years. You know, he represented me. He was court appointed. And after that, he was only appointed to represent me um, for my habeas corpus petition, my 2254. And once that was over, once I went to the United States Supreme Court, he sent me a letter asking me, you know, it would, it would be his honor and his pleasure to continue to represent me. And I beg the difference to this day. It was my honor, you know, it was my honor and pleasure to have him, for him to want to be part of my life. So to answer your question, when I walked out the door and he was there, yeah, that, that right there was um, the beginning of something truly new. For David Leger, seeing Terrence walk out as a free man was a culmination of 10 years of work for a cause he chose to take on because he believed so strongly in it. I always knew we'd get to this point. I just didn't know when. And at times it felt like it was forever into the future. Uh, and so I'm, I'm very pleased to have finally reached this point. Um, and, and, you know, again, I wish it didn't take 10 plus years. Yeah. But, you know, you lawyers, uh, most lawyers, I'll speak for, believe in the system. Understand it's flawed but believe generally in the system. And I believe generally in the system. What frustrates me is uh, a lot of folks aren't willing to accept that mistakes are made. And, yeah. you know, in Terrence's case, it shouldn't have taken 11 years after Judge Wells held that this had been a mistake. It shouldn't have taken 11 years. Yeah. And some, frankly, some, uh, we've dealt with some, people who should have realized it earlier, but thankfully we finally got it to people who, uh, including Judge McDermott, including Patricia Cummings and Andrew Welbrock and Tom Cayetta, and people who really care more about justice than about, uh, you know, statistics. And as glad as Terrence is to finally be free, he still doesn't understand why it had to take so long to get here. I'm happy I'm grateful, I'm elated, I'm ecstatic, and all the synonyms to them words. I, I, I'm, um, I'm humble that I'm home with my family and that I can go ahead and pick the pieces up and move on with my life. However, I'm not going to negate the fact that what I've witnessed and what I've um, experienced throughout my journey, that it didn't affect me somehow, some way. I'm not saying that I'm an angry black man or I'm bitter. That's not what I'm saying at all. What I'm saying is my 21 years away being um, away from home, being wrong, wrongfully convicted, and despite you know me yelling at the top of my lungs for someone to hear me, to hear my cries, and even when I proved my innocence 10 years ago, the system itself, compounded that injury by keeping me in jail for an additional 10 years. I don't want to diminish all the dedication and hard work that was put in by Terrence's attorneys and the Philadelphia CIU, but at the same time, it's hard for me to look at the past 21 years of Terrence's case and say, yeah, here's an example of the system getting it right. And for Terrence, his ordeal has left him with darker questions about the criminal justice system. Yeah, system, it needs fixing. I, I want to say I, I want to say that the system 
that we 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 um we engaging in now that it it needs fixing as opposed to well no it's designed that way it's designed that way for its purpose and it's doing what it's, it was designed to do. Terrence is free now, but 21 years in prison is not something he can just walk away from. He's spent a lifetime observing firsthand the injustices that our system inflicts on the innocent and guilty alike. This is why, in turn, I can't enjoy my cheesecake. This is, in turn, why I can't enjoy my shrimp in peace. This is why I can't really, you know, um, enjoy the sunset and the sunrise and walk and take a walk in the park and listen to the birds chirp and listen to the squirrels do what the squirrels do. Because in back of my mind, I'm thinking about what happened and what's on the books, these draconial statues and um, these disproportionate sentences. And I feel some type of way about it. I'm not, I, I just don't want to pay lip service to it. I really want to, um, I, I want to try to affect and bring about some type of change in a practical way. And this is probably not helpful, but I gotta say, my instinct is like, you deserve just to live <laughs> for a while. I, know. I mean, you don't have any responsibilities for this. But I feel obligated. Terrence does have some ideas, though, about the kinds of catching up on life that he wants to do now. I wanna, I've never been to a beach. I wanna go to the beach. I remember, you know, I used to look at TV. And from whether it was a commercial or some somebody was advertising, I want to live life. I never had a chance. I never been nowhere. You know, I never. I think I've been to the zoo, you know, prior to my incarceration. But I've never done nothing, nothing, other than, you know, I was subject to just standing door, standing door count, or you know, the the, the, the all the horror stories. And, and all the, the penitentiary uh, philosophies, you know. I mean, I was subject to them things. So to answer your question, I I want to I got a laundry list. But for now, his goal is to find a way to become a self-sufficient adult. He's staying with family for the time being, which he's grateful to have available to him. But it does come with its own risks. So striking out in his own is a priority. Putting myself in a position where as though um, I, I can have or establish a markable wage that I can remove myself from um, being a product of my environment, if that makes sense. Because, you know, I went back to the places where the likes of Lena Loss is and many more of them out there. And I don't, you know, that's like one of my fears that, you know, someone um, mistakenly accused me again of committing a wrong and instead of me being heard out I'd be taken away again and rotting away in jail and dying in jail so I guess one of the things to get in front of that is I would have to move from them type of environment do that make sense as someone serving a life sentence without parole there wasn't really anything in the way of vocational training available to him. I mean, after all, what would be the point, right? It's not like having a job is something he'd ever have to worry about. Only, now it is something he has to worry about. And for a while, after he realized he'd be getting out, Terrence thought he knew what he was doing. But that was before he was released as an innocent man. I used to say, I'm going um, to go be a truck driver. I'm going to get my CDL. And that was based upon, I knew some guys who went home as parolees, 
make good money, you know, um, yep. to be able to, to keep the bills on, to keep the lights on, and take care of, you know, and start a family. So I said, what could I possibly do at the age of 40 and don't have nothing else, you know, experience-wise? I said, well, I, for two months, and the state was willing to pay for um, me to go to school to be a truck driver, provided I come home as a parolee. They would send me to school in the state of Pennsylvania or the county of Philadelphia, they will pay the tab. But now that I have been exonerated and I'm a free man and I have been restored and and respect to my liberation, yeah, I don't have nothing. If Terrence had been resentenced as a juvenile lifer, then once he was paroled, he would have had support and programming options available to him. These programming options are available to all juvenile lifers in Pennsylvania. As an exoneree though, what does uh, someone in Pennsylvania get after they've been wrongfully incarcerated for 21 years? What does the state give uh, them? They um they get a they get what I have been given a congratulations and good luck. Pennsylvania doesn't have a, a compensation um, fund, or they don't have nothing that's on the books that once someone um, has been wrongfully you know what I mean convicted and been exonerated, they don't have no 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 funding they don't have no compensation for them to be handed so that they can go ahead and start from that moment on and living a life and trying to pick up the pieces they left on their own so for now terrence is trying to figure out what comes next he's thinking of going back to school to study law and criminal justice and i hope he gets a chance to do that but i'll admit this idea gives me a certain kind of sadness as well because in a way, it's a continuation, sort of, of the life he led while he was incarcerated, when he had no other paths available to him. I can't be an electrician, perhaps getting a salary, 80000 90000 a year, the best um, electrician I possibly be, because I don't know, I haven't learned them type skills. They, I was sitting idle for 21 years. The only thing that I do know and that I'm familiar with and that I now have a, and I do have a passion for is trying to, I guess, analyze, you know, case law and try to, you know, interpret, you know what I mean, through law. So that's all I know. So until, I guess, I'm able to go back to school and get a degree behind me, this is, this is all I know. Now that he's free, Terrence is going to have the chance to figure out what he wants to do with his life, whatever that ends up being. And to help, a fundraiser has been set up in his name. Terrence's father created a GoFundMe site for Terrence to help Terrence buy some clothing and get his feet situated. He'll need some support getting him. He does intend to enroll in college in the fall. He needs to work out a long-term living arrangement. He's living with his aunt now, but uh, you know that's not optimal. You know, unfortunately, unlike a lot of other states, Pennsylvania does have a stipend for people who were in, in properly incarcerated. But as with a lot of things in Terrence's life, as with everything in Terrence's life, he'll, he'll make do. He'll work hard to succeed. And that's what he started doing in this first month. He's building the groundwork for that. And again, I have no doubt that that's the path he's on.
If you'd like to donate to Terrence's GoFundMe, we'll have a link up in our show notes, or you can look up the Terrence Lewis Exoneration Fund at GoFundMe.com. They've set an initial goal of $10,000 they're trying to reach, so please consider donating today. Before we sign off, we wanted to provide you with an update in one of our other cases. In season two, we told you the story of Joy Watkins out of Rome, Georgia, being handled by the Georgia Innocence Project. Most recently, we told you the Supreme Court of Georgia had declined to hear his appeal from the lower court's denial of his motion for a new trial. But now, Susan, we've had a change of course, right? Yeah. When we left off the last update, we mentioned that a motion for consideration had been filed by a Georgia Innocence Project, and that was pending with the court. Um, but I don't believe we sound very optimistic about it. Yeah, as we noted in the context of the Anand Syed case, motions for reconsideration are real Hail Marys. They're granted less than 1% of the time. And so while the Georgia Innocence Project had filed this motion for reconsideration, there wasn't any real reason to believe it would be granted. Well, we got news back earlier this week that, in fact, the Georgia Supreme Court did grant it. They changed their minds, and they are going to hear Joey's appeal. This is an amazing win for Joey and the Georgia Innocence Project because... Without this, his options, at least in state court, were fairly limited, it's fair to say, um, or entirely limited. But the next step is briefing. Um, GIP will write a brief to the court, and presumably the state of Georgia will oppose it, and there'll be hearing on his, his appeal. And within, hopefully, the next year, we'll have a ruling on that. And if all goes well, we'll be back to the trial court for a hearing on his habeas action there. Well, it's good to get some good news in a case that we have been all holding our breaths for and working hard for for the last few years. Congratulations, Susan, to you, to GIP, and we hope you'll be home soon like Terrence. I'd like to thank the following people. Hannah McCarthy for audio production. Christy Williams and Nina Musser for website management. Baluki for our logo. Patrick Cortez and Ramiro Marquez for theme music. And Mithal Talhan, our executive producer. I'd like to thank our sponsor for today, Omaha Steaks. And as always, you can follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram using the handle at UndisclosedPod.